So why don't we just open in a word of prayer. Lord, we give you thanks for the day. Uh, we look forward to our time together. We, we trust that your spirit will, will uh, teach us, will strengthen us, will encourage us, will convict us, do whatever uh, your spirit needs to do to transform our lives. We look forward to our time together as we worship one another. We give you thanks that we can do that at this current moment. And so we turn our, our worship over to you now as we uh, prepare our hearts to receive your word in Christ's name. Okay, Janice, if you'd like to come up. Morning, everyone. If you can turn to Psalm 31, if you have a Bible in front of you, Psalm 31. It's a long one, so you might want to read along with me or follow along with me, I should say. In our ladies' study on uh, Monday night, we did the end of Acts chapter 7, which is about the stoning of Stephen. And he speaks truth to the council and um, rebukes them. And then in the end, if you're familiar with the story, he is stoned to death. But what was amazing in his, even in the last moments of his death, it was very reflective of Jesus's response in, in his crucifixion. And um, we had an awesome talk about Stephen and his example for us. And then with everything in the news about Afghanistan, just what was on my heart, I chose this, this Psalm because I can hear the voices of um, our persecuted brothers and sisters in this who are in great distress, not only for their physical fear. So when I read this, you can just hear the author and some scholars think it's David, but some do think it's Jeremiah who wrote this. So it's not certain who wrote this, but regardless, you can hear in the author's voice great distress, but also you can hear the author's trust in the Lord, in God's faithfulness. So I'll read this long psalm out loud. Psalm 31. O Lord, I have come to you for protection. Don't let me be disgraced. Save me, for you do what is right. Turn your ear to listen to me. Rescue me quickly. Be my rock of protection, a fortress where I will be safe. You are my rock and my fortress. For the honor of your name, lead me out of this danger. Pull me from the trap my enemies set for me, for I find protection in you alone. I entrust my spirit into your hand. Rescue me, Lord, for you are a faithful God. I hate those who worship worthless idols. I trust in the Lord. I will be glad and rejoice in your unfailing love, for you have seen my troubles, and you care about the anguish of my soul. You have not handed me over to my enemies, but have set me in a safe place. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I am in distress. Tears blur my eyes. My body and soul are withering away. I am dying from grief. My years are shortened by sadness. Sin has drained my strength. I am a wasting away from within. I am scorned by all my enemies and despised by my neighbors. Even my friends are afraid to come near me. When they see me on the street, they run the other way. I am ignored as if I were dead, as if I were a broken pot. I have heard the many rumors about me, and I am surrounded by terror. My enemies conspire against me, plotting to take my life. But I am trusting you, O Lord, saying you are my God. My future rests in your hands. Rescue me from those who hunt me down relentlessly. Let your favor shine on your servant. 
In your unfailing love, rescue me. Don't let me be disgraced, O Lord, for I call out to you for help. Let the wicked be disgraced. Let them lie silent in the grave, silence their lying lips, those proud and arrogant lips that accuse the godly. How great is the goodness you have stored up for those who fear you. You lavish it on those who come to you for protection, blessing them before the watching world. You hide them in the shelter of your presence, safe from those who conspire against them. You shelter them in your presence, far from accusing tons, tongues. Praise the Lord, for he has shown me the wonders of his unfailing love. He kept me safe when my city was under attack. In panic, I cried out, I am cut off from the Lord, but you heard my cry for mercy and answered my call for help. Love the Lord, all you godly ones, for the Lord protects those who are loyal to him, but he harshly punishes the arrogant. So be strong and courageous, all you who put your hope in the Lord. Okay, church, as we sing these songs there, the lyrics are to match the content of Psalms. So just think about these words as we sing them in relation to what Janice just said through the scriptures. Okay, please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32. Okay, I trust you found Hebrews 10, 32. Why don't we stand and read? The word of God together. But remember the former days when, after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Please be seated. This was an interesting week for me preparing for the message this morning. I was prepared to preach from the Old Testament, and I was going to do something sort of fun and lighthearted and, and just to have like a really kind of interesting topical conversation. And I was writing my sermon Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, but something kept nagging at me. I don't know if it was the Lord pulling out me or if it was my own thoughts about what was going on in the world, but I felt the need to change change the message. And so Friday morning, I said, Lord, you got to help me. I've got <laughs> basically a day, day and a half to get this done. And so here we are with a different message. But the reason why I needed to change and just felt the need to preach about something more important was because, not more important, but just different, was because a week ago, you all saw what happened in the news. The Taliban militants entered the country of uh, well, they entered the capital city of Kabul and took control of the civil government as their president fled. And of course, this came about as the, as the U.S. troops removed themselves after 20 years of being a presence in that country. Be, they've been there since 9-11, controlling the city and ensuring civil government was, was properly done. 
Now, interestingly enough, the U.S. predicted that the Taliban could rise up and potentially take control of the country if they left. But they thought it would take weeks. They thought it would take weeks, and it took a few short days. But as you can see on the news, or you've read about on things like on the news, or, on, or sorry, read about things in articles, the city is now in chaos. And if you've seen some of the scenes, you'll know what I mean. But it made me start thinking about our brothers and sisters in the Lord who are in, who are in that country right now under Taliban control. You see, the Christians there are very much in danger. If you, the Taliban sees a Christian person as an apostate to the Quran, and so they live in constant fear of that little knock on the door in the middle of the night. It's apparently the second hardest place to be a believer in the world next to North Korea. And there's only five to 8,000 believers in that country, according to the research that I've done. Five to 8,000 in that country of millions. So as I was thinking about these events, I was thinking, you know, why don't we dedicate this service to thinking about our brothers and sisters in the world, especially in places like Afghanistan, who are needing protection, who are needing provisionary care, and the boldness to share their faith with others in the midst of what could be a potential death sentence. And so I wanted to dedicate this service to, to them, both in prayer and in content. So I thought we should turn to Hebrews, because the Hebrew Christians were a church that were suffering under persecution. And it was a call of the writer of Hebrews, who we're not totally sure who it is. We don't know if it was Paul. Some think it was, um, well, it doesn't even matter who people think it is. There's a whole list of people that could potentially be the writer. Um, but Paul is very likely could be one of them. But we don't know the author for sure. But the writer here wanted to call them to persevering, realizing that there was a potential for these Christians to abandon Christ in the midst of what they were facing. And it was clear from this context, there was hardship and tremendous suffering for their faith in Jesus. So the first way the author writes to these, these believers here in order to help them endure was he reminds them of what they endured in the past already and how they'd already proven to be faithful in what they'd already faced. And we pick this up in verse 32. But remember the former days when, after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings. I want to first point out what this word enlightened means. And I think it's important because in some of our commentaries, at least in mine, it might just, it, the, 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 the definition of enlightened can, for some, merely mean just a knowledge of the truth of the Bible or the knowledge of the truth of Christ. So it's an intellectual understanding, but is not seen as a genuine Christian. But I want to say to you in this context and in the way the word is used elsewhere in Hebrews, that to be enlightened here is a reference to being a follower of Jesus. It's not merely an intellectual assent or you've heard about the gospel. It's as someone who's actually received the gospel and is living for Jesus in this world. In chapter 6, verse 4, the word has already been used to describe people in the church there. And I want you to hear the definition that the writer uses. In 6.4, he says this, For in the case of those who have once been enlightened, 
and have, watch this, tasted the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the power of the age to come. You hear those languages, or the language used there, I should say? These people have tasted the heavenly gift. They have tasted the word of God and the power of the age to come. But the most important phrase for me, they're partakers of the Holy Spirit. They've participated in the reception of the Holy Spirit. In other words, they've participated in what God has offered in salvation. And this is really important, I think, right off the cuff, because what he's saying is, um, you guys are legitimate followers of Jesus. You're legitimate followers. But as legitimate followers, you had to endure something great. And he describes it here as enduring a great conflict of sufferings. You've already endured a great conflict of suffering. Now, this great conflict of sufferings is actually an athletic metaphor. It's an athletic metaphor to describe the conflict. You see, the Greek word for conflict is athlesis. Athlesis, it means to be in a contest or combat. Now, that should ring a bell. It's where we get the word athlete from, or the word athletics from, to combat or contest. And those of us who love the Olympics just saw what athletes do. They, they enter into combat. They enter into contests in trying to win a prize. Well, these Hebrews had entered into an Olympics of their own. And it was coming at them in two different fronts. First, what they personally endured for the sake of a relationship with Jesus. And second, what they were willing to endure for the sake of Jesus. So number one, what they personally endured. Number two, what they were willing to do, endure for the sake of others. And we pick this up in verse 33. He says, you've, partly, you've uh, entered into great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. So what exactly were these public spectacles and reproaches and tribulations they were going through? Well, I can say this for sure, based on what I've learned late in the book. They weren't at this point in their lives experiencing martyrdom. At this point, it was not martyrdom, unlike the, Afghan the potential for the Christians in Afghanistan. We, can, we know this because of chapter 12, verse 4. In chapter 12, verse 4, I'm going to read this to you because it's important. He says, You have not resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. So at this point, you have not had to go through the shedding of blood to strive against sin. So again, they haven't been martyred yet for their faith, but it doesn't mean that they weren't going through some really, really tough things. You see, we pick up what they were going through in verse 34. And the first thing I want to point out is, is actually the second part of it. He says, they were accepting joyfully the seizure of their property. The sufferings they were going through, they were suffering the seizure of their property. Now, when I heard that, I automatically thought it must be their homes. To have the seizure of a property must be homes. Well, I can say that for sure, the Greek word for property is use of homes in the, Old, in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 34, homes is part of having property. But it couldn't, it does actually entail more than that. It could have been their houses, but it could have been more than that. And I want to show you Acts 4.34 because those of us in our men's and women's Bible studies are very familiar with this chapter and these verse. But in this, uh, 
Look at this. The blue highlights of belonged and were is actually the Greek word property. I know it seems a bit strange, but just trust me with that. It's the same word property. And this is what he says. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. No one said that any things that belonged to them, their own property, was their own, but they had everything in common. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands and houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. So we see in this context here, not, property is not only to own a home, but to own land. And so what was happening is these, these Hebrew believers were being approached by the people of the world who hated them because of their association with Jesus, and they were seizing their lands from them and their homes from them because of their association with Christ. But there's more. This word is not just a reference to, to uh, homes and land. It's actually to household goods and other possessions. Consider um, Luke 19. And maybe I can't. There it is. Yeah. So you remember the story? Z Zacchaeus, here's Jesus is coming to town. He climbs a sycamore tree to hear about Jesus. Jesus spots him in the tree and basically uh, wants to invite him to come join them. And so it says in Luke 19, when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions, Greek property, I will give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. This is really important. He's staying at his house. Jesus came to his house, but he gave his possessions away. So it can't be his home. <laughs> it's other things contained within his house. So what we have here now is a, is a good understanding of what it means to have property. It's homes, it's lands, it's material goods. And so this is really, really important, church, as we look at this, of what these guys are receiving in terms of persecution as a result of their connection to Jesus. But what really shocks me and what really hit home for me in my studies yesterday was their attitude in the seizure of their property. Did you see that in verse 34? For you showed, or you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. Joyfully, church. What a massive lesson for me. What a massive lesson for you, especially those of you who are justice warriors in the church, want everything to be done with justice. I want you to think about how hard you have worked to have the acreage you have, how hard you have worked in this capitalistic society to put a roof over your heads, how with all the houses that you could have picked, you chose that particular one for those particular reasons. And how you filled them with particular furniture and, and have trailers on your garage driveways and the nicest trucks and cars you could think of to pull those extra toys. Think of all the extra things that you have that are of value to you, your paintings, your art, your instruments, like your sporting equipment, whatever it may be. For many of you, it's your coffee machine. <laughs> whatever it is, and these, these things were just taken from you, what would your response be? Mine, I'll be honest, anger, frustration, 
violation of my own, of my rights and liberties as a human being. And it'd be something like this, God, that is not fair. I worked so hard for this. And my wife joined me in that efforts as well. But what's the response of the Hebrew believers? Nothing of the sort. Joyful acceptance of the seizure of their things. And they would let it go joyfully, all because of where they of their association with Jesus Christ. They truly knew how to live out the words of Matthew 6 from Jesus and Paul in 1 Timothy. Look at these words here from, from the Lord. He says, Do not store up your, for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. <laughs> But store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where is their Hebrew believer's heart? Not even one iota tied to the pleasures of this world. Not one drop. Consider 1 Timothy 6. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God. Again, Hebrew believers, a model of this. Man, this passage may force me to look inwardly. For the first, you know, if you were to ask me a few weeks ago or even a couple days ago, you know, Andrew, like, what's, your, uh, tie, what's your ties to material wealth and possessions? I honestly would have probably said something like this. You know, I've, God's done a massive work in my life. I'm not that tied to it anymore. But when I read this, I was like kicked to the curb. If sandstone was taken away from me and everything on the driveway, would I really act joyfully in my first expression? Would you act joyfully as your first expression? This was important for me to go, Lord, I still have more growing to do. <laughs> but thank you to where you've brought me thus far, because I've made huge victory in a lot of ways in the area of money. But what the takeaway from these Hebrew believers was their hope and security was truly and solely placed in Jesus Christ. And may that be said of us as the years go on, but before we move on, I do want to say I think it's important to recognize that persecution comes in other forms than martyrdom. See, a lot of times we think, well, if I'm not being killed for my faith or my life's not threatened, I'm not, you know, truly being persecuted or I'm not sort of going down the line that God wants me to. Not true. Chapter 12, they have not yet lost their lives. But yet look how he defines them in verse 32. He says, you endured a great conflict of sufferings. So the writer of Hebrews sees it as legitimate persecution. So it started to make me think of other forms of persecution in the Bible that we can see. And so I thought, well, verbal abuse counts. Verbal abuse. It can come in the form of insults, being mocked or slandered when people speak evil of you. This was the case with Jesus in Matthew 27. 
He was crucified, and the religious leaders and the robbers on the crosses were hurling insults at him. And earlier on in Jesus' ministry in Matthew 12 and 24, he was being accused of being demonic for his healings. So again, verbal insults and mockings and slander is part of being persecuted for the name of Jesus. It also can come in the area of threats and intimidation. Again, those of you who are in the Bible study for Acts in the men's and women's groups, we saw Peter and John arrested in Acts chapter 4. And they were told, you better not speak anymore about the name of Jesus in Jerusalem or else. And they were threatened. How about loss of friendships? Loss of friendships for the name of Jesus. Legitimate form of persecution and suffering. Judas walked away from the Lord. And other disciples did too. I think of John chapter 6. It says there in 66 that many followed after him. But, but there were those during the ministry that left him once they couldn't agree with certain amounts of his teaching. The teaching got too tough and they took off. But they were disciples following the Lord around. And so I think it's important to recognize that persecution can result in martyrdom, but there are other forms, and we have, these, are, these are legitimate forms of suffering for the Lord. And I'm sure if I asked you about your own life, you could tell me your own stories, but I have a few of my own. And again, it may lead to martyrdom one day, but I still have legitimate things I've faced. Uh, since my commitment to the Jesus Christ, there's been tensions in my family. There's been tensions in my family. But by the way, we stood up for, for what we believe to be true and what Christ teaches us. We've been threatened. We've been intimidated or attempted, attempted to be intimidated. And we've been called names. I remember suffering economic loss in the gym because of our stance in Jesus Christ. People have left Genesis House because of our stance in Jesus Christ. They're all legitimate forms of suffering and they all can truly hurt. So the first way, like I said, the way these, the way these guys engage in athletic conflict and were participating in their own form of Olympics was what they were personally enduring for the sake of Jesus. But the second way was in what they were willing to endure for others. And we pick this up in verse 33 and 34. He says, you've been made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners. Our world right now is all about identity. Identity. Who do you identify with? What do you identify as? Look at the identity of these, these believers in Hebrews. They were willing to identify identify with those who stood firm in the suffering for Christ. This was suffering that they weren't enduring. It was suffering that others were enduring, but they were willing to stand in solidarity with them and identify with those people. So I was thinking, how would that be a form of suffering? Well, he doesn't tell us, but I'm going to give you two suggestions, and I think I'm not far off. Number one, it would come at personal cost because of the potential for public scorn. If, if you're hated in your nation for following Christ and you've already uh, been like, you know, mistreated and you show up and you say, I want to see so-and-so to have a visit, the ridicule and the mocking from the public and the guards and everyone there would say, what are you doing you know, associating with this Jesus freak? 
right? The public ridicule and scorn you'd receive just by associating with that person. But also, depending on how crooked the country is, especially if you're under the Taliban regime, just showing up could probably mean imprisonment for yourself, potentially. Just the fact that you identified with them, you've made a, yourself a public spectacle, and now they want to put you in prison because, oh, we found another one of you kind of people. But you know what? They did it because of their love for Jesus Christ and for love for their spiritual family. And you need to turn to this passage, church, because this is one of the most powerful passages in the Bible. And I, I, I don't know, I use this in so many different ways in application. I've used this so many ways in the last two years in application, but today it's going to be used in a particular way. Turn to Matthew 25, 31. Matthew 25, 31. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on, the th on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on the right, come you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a naked stranger and you invited me in. Naked and you, and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger, invite you in or naked or clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did these to the, one of these brothers or sisters of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. To visit someone in prison, according to Jesus, even though Jesus was not physically present in that cell, was to do it to him. To share in the suffering of another believer was to actually uh, share in the suffering of Jesus Christ. To, 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 to seek to take care of that person in prison was, from the Lord's perspective, to do it to him. This speaks to the unity that we have in Christ and the oneness we have with Jesus when we become saved by him. I'll never forget Acts chapter 9 and verse 4. Remember Paul? He's on the road to Damascus. That is a fascinating phrase. Fascinating phrase. He comes. Jesus appears to him. And what does he say? Jesus doesn't say this. Paul, why are you persecuting my fellow brothers in Jerusalem and in Damascus? He does not say that. He says, Paul, Paul, or Saul, Saul back then, why are you persecuting me? <laughs> to touch the life of a believer is to touch the life of a Jesus, both in persecution and so therefore your condemnation, but also in your blessing if you reach out and take care of one of God's people. Isn't that absolutely incredible, church? Ever think of it that way? To touch my life or for me to touch your life is to touch Jesus Christ. And so when we go to visit one in prison, we touch the life of the Lord. It's an eternal issue for him here. 
And we know why, right? One of the hardest tests in faith would be being in jail for the sake of Christ. I mean, you're removed from all comforts of this world that you're used to. It's not the same food. It's not the same clothing. It's not your bed. The relationships are completely, that you love are completely ripped away from you. Your church family's gone. Your biological family's gone. In many prisons, your physical health is an absolute danger. I've been reading, I finished the book, uh, The Heavenly Man by Brother Yoon. I recommend you read that. It'll change your life. You read that book, the, the, the life that he lived in prison under the horrific circumstances because they didn't, it wasn't out to give anybody fairness. It was out to make their life miserable. The beatings, the intimidation, the, and the sickness they received from the unsanitary conditions of the, of the, of the places. A visitor provides encouragement. <laughs> a visitor st- provides strength and resolve to that individual and can even bring provisions that are lacking. We see examples of this in the Bible. And Epaphroditus visits Paul in the Philippian jail and brings him a- an offering. And a Timothy visits Paul in 2 Timothy 4.13 and he brings him a cloak that he wanted, no doubt because he was probably cold at night. And he brought him books and parchments, no doubt the Old Testament and maybe some of his church letters. But these were all things to strengthen him, his resolve, and to take care of him. So why did these Hebrew believers keep going? What's the point? Why would anyone keep going? Well, let's look at verse 34 of Hebrews chapter 10 again. He says, for you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the siege of your property. Watch this. Knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. You persevere knowing that you have a better possession and a lasting one. These Hebrew believers did not have their hope fixated in this world, but in the world to come. In other words, Genesis House, they didn't have a temporal perspective on life, but an eternal perspective on life. And although they were living on this earth, they had the exact same view of this world as Abraham did in chapter 11, verse 9. In chapter 11, verse 9 of Hebrews, it says, By faith he made his home, speaking of Abraham, like a stranger in a foreign country. And then it says, for he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. These Hebrew Christians were able to persevere because their entire lives are fixated on what God had promised for the future and saw him as faithful in being able to deliver on his promises. But what's fascinating is we can tell by the next verses that this standing up for Jesus and this perseverance for his name's sake was starting to wear on them. It was starting to wear on them, and some of them were probably starting to waver. The pressure was getting high. They were were wanting to succumb. And we pick this up because of the writer's words in, in verse 35 and 36. He then has to tell these faithful believers, therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, For you have need of endurance right now, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. You may receive what was promised. You know, this is good for us to see. 
Church, when we look around at Genesis House right now, don't put your hands up or yell out names, but if I were to say, who do you think are the most faithful followers of Christ in our church? You know, those of you who've been here for eight years, some of you have been there for, you know, maybe a couple months. Who do you see as faithful followers in Genesis House? And why do you see them that way? You'd come up with a few names, right? Or maybe a lot of names, whatever. And it doesn't even matter how you view them. Because here's a lesson we learned from, from this, this chapter right here. Even the most faithful of followers, people that will risk their necks by visiting other believers in prison, people who will let joyfully receive the seizure of their properties, still can have doubt and still can waver in their faith. When the pressure's high, we feel it. We feel it. I know I've gone through my bouts, church. The record that plays in my head often is, is it worth it, Lord? Have I, if I'm, am I wasting time? You know, am I, am I thinking right? Am I, am I doing the right thing? Is this really real? Is this really true? You know, all these kind of thoughts often come in my head. And the temptation to conform to the world and its pressures are really high. All I have to do, all you have to do to get out of it is stop being a loyal to Jesus Christ and it ends for you. <laughs> They're in, like all, this, all of this uh, suffering is only because of allegiance to Jesus. Prior to that, they're doing well in this world. They're accepted by this world. And, and the heavenly man, they have a phrase in China, Brother Yun, I, he says, we, we, we cry out all the time, I will not be a Judas, I will not be a Judas. That's the Chinese slogan in the midst of persecution. I will not be a Judas. It's their battle cry in the midst of, the, of, the, of their nation. And the, the writer of Hebrews is writing to them saying, don't throw away your confidence that you have in the, in the reward you will get. Keep on doing. You've already been so faithful in the past. It's worth it. The Lord has an incredible reward for you. Don't give up. And it may seem like an eternity, but he says, it's not. <laughs> and he quotes Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 37. He says, forget in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. <clears throat> and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Again, he's saying, hold on, guys. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. I know it's, and it's, he's coming soon. It's gonna, I know it seems like an eternity, but he's coming. He will not delay. And then he will vindicate the righteous and hand out justice on those who've taken your properties away from you, who have verbally abused you, who've made you suffer economic loss. That's when vengeance comes. And so he's saying this, church, there's two ways we can live knowing this reality. There's only two ways in this, in verse 37 through 39 or, 30, or sorry, 37, 38. You can live righteously by faith and remain in loyalty to Jesus Christ, or you can shrink back. You can shrink back. And the, the crazy thing is, he says, well, if you shrink back and we ditch God, we walk away from him completely. Your, his, his soul has no pleasure in us. Has no pleasure in us. 
Again, we're not talking about a one-off sin or, or mistakes that we make here and there. We're talking about a willful rejection of Jesus Christ. We, we abandon him completely because we do not want to endure the hardships anymore. And so, as one of my commentators said well, he said this, the cry to the Hebrews is to remain steadfast in, in adverse and disheartening circumstances, knowing the future of their great reward. So it might seem like a kind of scary ending for us. It might have seemed that way for the Hebrews, but the author leaves them with a really strong word of encouragement once again, a message of hope. He says in 39, but <laughs> we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith for the preserving of the soul. I love this. The author of Hebrews does not want to discourage his readers by ending in this way, but he wants to embolden them so that they will emerge victorious from the present growing tests of their faith and persevere till Christ's return. And so he acts like a cheerleader. He acts like a cheerleader at a pep rally. He's like, come on, guys, remember your past and how victorious you were. You can continue to do this. Yes, I know you want to shrink back. I know you, there's times when you have doubts and don't know if it's worth it, but please, and I beg of you, continue, because you're not like, you're not those people. You're not those people. I, I, I believe in you. I trust in you. And it's a pep rally to keep them going in their faith. And may this message be a pep rally for those of us in this church who might be feeling the pressures of this world, wanting to succumb, wondering if it's all worth it. And a cry out to our Afghani brothers and sisters who may receive that knock on the door at 11 o'clock at night. At Thetis Island on holidays, we were there for a week, and our speaker, Clayton Dugan, spoke on the Gospel of Mark. And he made two or three comments to the week that I'll never forget. But here is one of them. And it's funny because I know this intellectually, but it's hit me differently, like right here. He said he was motivating all of us to share our faith and live out our, our lives in loyalty to Christ. And he said, listen, church, or listen, those, you know, it wasn't really, a, I guess it was a church. Yeah, we were all there in the auditorium and stuff, and God's people were gathered together. He says, listen, either Christianity is true or it's not. You hear that, church? It's either 100% true or it's 100% not. It's not 98% true and 2% maybe. It's either 100% or it's zero. There is no middle ground. So he says, you have to decide if it's true. If it's true, then we will persevere to the end, no matter what we face. And that's why we need the body of Christ to encourage one another. Right before this in chapter 10, let us, in verse 24, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another as all the more as you see the dray drawing near. We need each other, church. We need to be in person with one another, gathering together, strengthening one another, because this is a brutal world that wants to take us out, and the devil would love to do it. But as I stand here as your shepherd, I'm going to fight like hell 
to make sure that doesn't happen. <laughs> Amen. So what do we learn? Being persecuted for the name of Christ can take on different forms. Yes, it can result in martyrdom. That is the ultimate, probably farthest end it can be taken. But you know what, church, we learn from here, it can, it can be the seizure of your property. It can be associating with other brothers and getting mocked for it. It can come in verbal threats, it can come in intimidation, economic loss, whatever. They're all legit and they're defined as suffering in this context. Number two, having an eternal perspective is an absolute necessity for enduring hardship in this world. After he goes through all the hardships, he says, you do this knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. And then in verse 38, he says, keep going and endure it so that you may receive what was promised. The only way an Afghani can handle the knock on the door, the only way your, your trailer and your truck and your acreage and your coffee machine and your, your fiddles and your fishing gear and everything can get confiscated from you, is you and with joy is if you have this fully embraced in your heart. It's the only way, church. And this kicked me right in the butt this week. I hope it did the same for you. <laughs> Lesson three. When a follower of Jesus shares in the suffering of a fellow brother or sister in the Lord, Jesus sees the action as being personally done to him. I love this lesson. It might be my favorite one today. Matthew 25, to the least you did it to the brothers, you did it to me. Acts chapter 9, why are you persecuting me? Saul, I'm not persecuting you. I'm going after the Christians in Damascus. And Jesus says, exactly. You touched me. I love this verse. Just think about that and the way you treat your fellow brother and sister in the Lord. And finally, since the potential exists for all of God's people to shrink back and fail, to persevere, we need to encourage one another as we wait for the Lord's return. These Christians are in a different category than me. They've already confessed in the area of finances. And yet they have this temptation to shrink back. Well, if they do, then it must be true for me too. And we learned last week in the character story of Barnabas. What did Barnabas do? Faithful, 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 faithful. He's in Antioch. <laughs> Falls. Peter, faithful, 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 faithful. He's in Antioch. Falls. Listen, church, we need each other. We need to be encouraging one another. We need to be meeting together on a regular basis because the potential exists for all of God's people to shrink back. And so we're there to support one another, encourage one another in the Lord until the day he comes and vindicates us and brings justice on this world for its mistreatment of us. Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you that we can work with you in uh, fulfilling your kingdom's purposes. And because of the unification between a believer and you, geography doesn't hold any bounds against us. Your spirit transcends 
all time, space, and matter. And so when we pray to you now, you can impact the lives of those thousands of miles away. And so we know in Ephesians that uh, one of the prayers that we can pray is that our prayers, we can communicate with you in a way that you'll speak to the spirit of another man or woman. May the prayers of Genesis House uh, now speak to the hearts and minds of those brothers and sisters in the world who need it right now to persevere and to be strengthened. We pray that you give them those words of comfort and, uh, and to bolden them like you did the church in Acts when they cried out and said, the Gentiles rage, what are we going to do? And you strengthened them by your spirit and gave them bold, boldness and courage to speak. Stephen's face shone like an angel knowing he was facing death. May Lord, in all the situations that we face, that we have the same um, courage and boldness and same demeanor uh, as they did. So we thank you for your time in Christ's name. Amen.